I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Chris Perkins. Chris is a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he got his start at 21 when he bought a restaurant. So um, Chris, uh, your bio is, is actually brings up a lot of uh, really cool and interesting nuances to this conversation, as I mentioned. Um, first, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for taking out the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Up, up there in Canada, I won't try to pronounce <laughs> Saskatoon, I believe is what you said. Yeah, yeah, um, that's good. There you go. So, um, Chris, can you just kind of give us give us your background, talk about, you know, kind of how you got started? I, I am very interested to talk about sort of the restaurant angle, but let's just let's just get in your words, your story, and then we'll dive in. Yeah. So how I got started in the restaurant business was, you know, early in early in life, I like interested in food. I love food, right? And I love eating good food. So it led to me like just wanting to be creative with food and make good meals and things. And then I started working at uh, Dairy Queen, and uh, that was my first ever job at 15 years old. And so I just kind of um it evolved from there because we just started getting creative with burgers and doing weird things with burgers and stuff like that that was totally off the menu right okay. and then um i started working at a boston pizza which is basically a canadian franchise they don't have them in the us um but it's you know typical like the food's already prepared for you you're not actually cooking anything you're just assembling things basically and i worked my way up to management there um i was kitchen manager there at 17 years old so i got to learn like food cost and you know how much food a restaurant goes through how much labor cost should be all the analytical business side of things right at 17 years old which most people don't get that opportunity mm -hmm. so i was super thankful for that and then by the last semester of high school, I was more focused on work than I was on high school, which was eh, probably, you know, you could argue either way. Uh, <laughs> but I was working like 12 hours a day and I was working at a cabinet making shop because that was kind of my woodworking was a passion of mine as well, but it just didn't pay. Right. Mm -hmm. And the restaurant business just kept paying me more and giving me raises and advancing me. And there was just no advancement in the woodworking industry uh, at the company that I was working with. So plane flying over. Um, so I started, you know, basically saving a lot of cash. And my dad kind of coach, coached me into like, hey, you're making all this money, you're working super hard, let's not blow it all. And so he ba basically gave me a choice, either an ultimatum, either you're going to start paying rent. I don't care if you're 17, you're still going to start paying rent, or you're going to start putting money into an investment. And so I started putting monthly contributions into an investment and saving my cash. And so as it turns out over the period of time, I stacked away enough cash to buy a car, stacked away enough cash for a down payment on a house, and then started stacking cash for um, you know, a business opportunity if one were to come up. So then I got kind of farmed by this restaurant in the, in the city that I was from, Lloydminster, um, and they made everything from scratch. Nothing was brought in pre-done. They bring in like whole muscles of the cow and you cut it, you know? <laughs> So it kind of got to be a craft yeah. from there. And then so I developed recipes and things like that. And so then I was like, I want to buy this place. 
And they're like, yeah, actually we're looking at selling. So I'm like, that's fantastic. So started, you know, going through the paperwork and getting everything done there. And then somebody came and offered them like a hundred thousand more than they were talking about selling it to me for. So they had to sell it kind of business decision, obviously got to do what you got to do, what's best for them. Right. And so I was super bummed out about that. And then I started looking at other places, the guy that took that restaurant over, I was still a kitchen manager there, but he thought he could run the restaurant by sitting at the bar and drinking beer with customers. And it's like, eh, it doesn't really work that way. Um, so it quickly was like going sideways. It wasn't going well for him. I was kind of holding things together in the kitchen, but I would make a food order and not all the food would show up. So he would go in and like cross off things that I ordered. And then we run out of food. Like yeah. Benny, I can't run a kitchen with no food. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And so I ended up actually burning myself there. And I had a blister from the bottom of my shoulder blade all the way down to my hip uh, with boiling water. I slipped in the kitchen, caught my arm on a pot, spilt it on my back, and I was off work for six weeks. I couldn't be anywhere near charboiler or heat of any kind. Yeah. Sure, I, I'd go cra stir crazy when I have nothing to do, and I really couldn't do much. And so I, this was like still when people are reading newspapers, like this is 2000, 2004, right? So there's not a lot of, lot of you know technology out there like we have today. So I'm reading newspapers. I find this restaurant in the ad that's for sale. And it's going bankrupt and the business building land everything's for sale so got looking into that started getting appraisals done started going through due diligence process there and yeah long story short ended up being able to purchase this restaurant that was doing 400 dollars a day in sales which if anybody knows anything about the restaurant business 400 dollars a day in sales is like not enough to turn lights on right. and it was a 150 seat restaurant so it's a big place four thousand square wow. feet um and it had 50, 52 parking stalls. So it was a big piece of land, big endeavor. Uh, the cost of buying it was 625,000 altogether. At the time I was 20 years old when we were going through due diligence, I turned 21 in the meantime, developing menus, getting relationships built with, you know, food distributors and things like that. Of course, I have no credit at this point in my life, very little credit because I've yeah. paid cash for my car, got a co-signer, like my dad co-signed for my mortgage for my house. So I don't have any hist credit history. So it was very difficult to get loans and things like that. So I don't know if we want to get more into like how that deal was structured and stuff like that. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. Tell, tell me about it. Okay. So what I ended up doing was buying the land and building in a separate company's name and then buying the business through a numbered company. We have numbered companies in Canada. And so essentially I signed a lease agreement between the numbered company and the real estate company. So they kept them as two separate entities. And so when I purchased the business, I was proving that it could be, it would be able to pay the lease agreement. Right. And so then the, I have two profitable entities here. So profitable real estate business and profitable restaurant business. So they're kind of, working together, but I'm my own landlord at the same time. Right. right. So I control this. So we had, we ended up just making at first, we just made the lease payment exactly of what the mortgage payment was so that we could make sure to keep our costs of overhead low. And then slowly, I just kept raising the rent, raising the rent, raising the rent. And this was eventually going to be our exit strategy. And I knew that right from the get go is that we're going to sell the business, keep the real estate, and then we have income in perpetuity until mm -hmm. we sell the building. So, in order to get the loan, my dad put up his apartment building that he had that was free and clear and paid for. 
And then he matched my down payment that I had on the equipment side because restaurant, it's very hard to get an equipment loan because the equipment, the bank knows that if you go broke, worst things, worst case scenario, they're going to get 10 cents on the dollar at an auction for that equipment. So in Canada, they wanted 30% down payment on the equipment, which at that time was 30 grand. And so I had 15 grand and my dad pitched in 15 grand. And then I had, had to have some money for food to fill the building. So I buy all this food. I spent the rest of my life savings on perishable goods. <laughs> okay. And I had no money left for advertising, no way to get the word out there other than two feet in a heartbeat. And so I drove around to 200 different businesses in town and just said, Hey, this is who I am. This is where I'm coming from. And this is when we're opening and gave them a like little, like literally a white black and white menu. Just fold it in half. This is what our menu is going to be. Here's a piece of paper with our <laughs> yeah, exactly. the food we're going to have. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even have enough money for a sign on the building. There's no signage, no nothing. And I just went around and told everybody, hey, this is the old, it was the old Venice house that I bought. And so went around, told them, this is where we are. This is when we're opening and come give us a shot, you know? And I didn't realize the impact that that would have on people, right? Like, now I put myself in that position. If I'm a business owner and I'm sitting at work and this young 21-year-old kid comes in super ambitious, like, hey, we're really excited opening this restaurant. Here's a menu. Come try us out. Like, I got to eat anyways. I'll go there. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Shows initiative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we opened the doors on December 2nd, 2004. And the first day of sales, you know, it was a tough day because everybody know their, knew their jobs, but they didn't know where anything was. And so this is kind of like our soft opening, right? And so we, we were only open for four hours, did $1,200 in sales, which is three times the amount that was coming into that building before. <laughs> yep. So I'm like, you know, this is positive. We just increased the sales by 300, or yeah, by 300%, right? And then the following day was a Friday and we did $4,000 a day that day in sales. And my dad was supposed to be just like bookkeeper, you know, back office kind of thing, helping me out, right? On that end of things. So my mom wanted to be there, you know, sentimental moms want to be there for the first first day of opening. So she's there on the Friday and she she calls my dad and she's like, you got to come down here. You got to come down here. And he's like, I'm watching the baseball game. Like, I don't I don't need to come down there. It's fine. He'll 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 be fine. He'll take care of it. And he, she's like, no, Ray, there's a lineup around the corner to get in here. And there's nobody to look after the people that are waiting in line. And He's like, Ugh, I'll come down there. <laughs> by the time, by the time he comes down there, I have like probably two thousand dollars worth of meat on the charboiler, and everybody's running around like crazy serving these customers. We were very understaffed because when we take over a business that's not used to having people in it, how do you staff it? Right? They had they had three staff in total when I took it over. We started with eight. And the guy's like, you're nuts. You have way too much overhead, way too many staff. And I'm like, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And we started with eight people on, on a Friday night and we had nowhere near enough. And so we needed more like 12. So all these people are like run off their feet all night and it's a marathon, right? And when you're in a restaurant business and you've got to line up out the door, it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> so my dad walks in and this is, this is like a serious turning point, like second day of the restaurant being open. He walks in and he looks at me and I look at him like, I'm giggling, like, this is awesome, right? Yeah, that, like, right. the worst thing that could happen is nobody comes. And so we got people in the door. And that was one of my dad's questions is like, nobody goes there. How are you going to get people in the door? And I'm like, don't worry about it, dad. I got a plan. He's like, 
yeah, that's what I'm saying. Tell me the plan. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, don't worry about it. I got a plan. So I never, ever told him the plan and I just did it. And then he walks in the door and I'm, and he goes, holy shit, Chris, this is crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. This is good awesome. Crazy. Yeah, it's good crazy. <laughs> and he's like, you actually want to do this for the rest of your life? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, at that moment, I'm just like, why do I have to do this for the rest of my life? I don't have to do this for the rest of my life. This is a stepping stone. Right. right. Doesn't have to be for the rest of my life. Doesn't have to be permanent, right? So um, I don't know if you have more questions around that or, you know, I kind of fed a lot of stuff there. <laughs> yeah, no, let, let's uh, let's dive in a little bit because I think, you know, a lot of really great lessons there that you can apply to business, you can apply to real estate, What you know, whatever. And I think like, I guess my first question is, this is a lot of, I mean, just broad topics, right? Creative financing, uh, splitting the the land and the and the business into two different LLCs. That's you know, creative structuring, um, bringing in partners. It's your dad, but still, like, like that's doesn't matter. Like, lots of people use family and friends as partners, and then um, this you know kind of strategy of going out and and like literally going to all these 200 places and, and talking to them. So you, you were young, Chris, and it, it's, it's not, I mean, you mentioned sort of that, you know, you're working more than you were spending time in high school. Um, I did a similar thing, although I, I wish I did it on such a creative level. I just <laughs> worked when I was young, but the, how did you, I mean, how did you kind of come into this? Sounds like your, your dad had an apartment building. So, so I'm, I'm guessing your dad had some level of, entrepreneurial, you know, or, or real estate background, so something along those lines. But it, these are a lot of concepts that like, you know, people well into their <laughs> adult years, don't think about don't know it's available kind of I, I'm honestly curious, like, how did you come upon some of these ideas? It was like, from the beginning of my life, really, my dad was always an entrepreneur, he had worked in the oil field for a long time, and then he would take the money that he made in the oil field and try to invest it in the things that he thought would be good long-term investments. And he's always had this like long-term, um, long-term outlook on things. Right. And so for instance, when you put yourself out there like that, things are going to come to you. Opportunities are going to come to you. Right. Mm -hmm. So what happened to him was he actually started a bar and he started it as a silent partner, put $100,000 of his hard-earned cash in, like working on the oil field, right? And the guy that owned it, like owned the uh, boating rights to it, drank the profits away and it went bankrupt. And so he learned a hard lesson from that, that you need to have say, right? You need to have some sort of say, or you need to trust that person so much and really do your due diligence on that person, right? That's going to be operating things. And so... My grandfather always said, like, you're going to have to learn from other people's mistakes, Chris, because you're never going to live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself. And so as things evolve, right, I just watched my dad, watched him make mistakes, watched the troubles and the struggles that he went through. Then all of a sudden he gets this guy and he had a locksmithing business. And so he gets this guy in his locksmithing business and the guy wants these apartments and houses rekeyed. And he's like, actually, Ray, you know, like they'd done business before together. And he's like, Ray, um, one of the things I, I need to get rid of this because I'm moving into commercial and industrial real estate. So I want to get rid of all this residential stuff. And my dad's like, ah, I just started this locksmithing business. Like I can't 
I don't have any money to buy any of it right now. And the guy's like, I'll sell it all to you for a dollar. If you promise to give me the rent, all of the rent in perpetuity and not in perpetuity, rather until the loans are paid off. And so he sold him all of these four houses and the seven suite walk up apartment building. Um, this was in the mid eighties, maybe even early nineties for $240,000. Four houses and a seven suite walk up apartment building for $240,000. Like oh, the good old days <laughs> and vendor financing. My dad never, he had to come up with five bucks. Yeah. $1 on every property until, you know, and then the guy was really good about it. He's like, if you run into problems with vacancies, just give me a call and let me know. All you got to do is let me know. We'll lower the payment until you fill it back up and we just keep going. Yeah. So it was literally just work that needed to be done on my dad's end. Right. So I'm learning from all this and I went there and I did the work with him. I, you know, helped him rip out things, helped him paint things, help him you know, do the lawns and maintain the properties and things like that. And so you see the struggles with the tenants and, you know, on and on. Um, I think lots of people that are in real estate watch your podcast. So they know some of the struggles that you find with tenants and things like that. Right. And one tenants story are... really, yeah, tenants are in, can be a nightmare. Um, he had these one tenants. It's, the story really was a turning point for me as well. Um, they were really good tenants for five years pay their rent three months in advance all the time. Then they're like, call them up and they're like, Hey, we're going to Mexico for two months. And we're wondering if you can take care of the lawn for two months. And he's like, yeah, okay, no problem. So he takes care of the lawn for two months. And then he just kind of stopped because they figured they'd be back after two months and he just left them alone. The rent was paid. They never came back. They never ever came back. They left the house fully furnished clothes there they had six kids all the kids toys everything there was still a bowl of cereal sitting there but my dad never went in the house to check it because it's just two months right he thinks like right. they got somebody else to take care of looking at the house or whatever yeah. he never went in, they never went in there they stopped paying the electric bill they stopped paying everything but the rent was paid so my dad was like well it's all right <laughs> yeah i already got the money for the rent right and so that house was so damaged and, and destroyed that my dad actually ended up selling the house. They just couldn't even, and it actually ended up getting moved out. Like they, the people that bought it took the house right off the property. It oh. was so bad. Yeah, it was so bad. And so, you know, just again, learning lessons, like you got to check up on these things. It takes work. It's not yeah. buy a property, rent it out and it's hands-free after that. Right. Right. Yeah, for it doesn't sure. work that way. So <laughs> that's kind of how things evolved. And, you know, I just locksmithing wasn't my dad's passion and he wasn't into it. He was just there for the money. And I didn't want to work just for money. I want to have something that's a fulfilling career as well. Right. And I know that over time things change. And just because the restaurant business fulfilled me in my early 20s doesn't mean it's always going to fulfill me. Right. We evolve, right? And we change and we adapt to new ideas and new things that come our way. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that that's true. It's something we've actually talked about on the show quite a bit is just people's like vision and, and, and their why and, you know, all of that kind of shifts in life. And, and, you know, I think some of it has to do with age, but some of it has to just do with, you know, what stage you are in life, whether, you know, it's kids or, or marriage or retirement, whatever, whatever 
big life step might be you know you can have different different focuses um so i mean it sounds like this this restaurant was obviously like a huge success in the in the beginning uh you know at least two days we heard <laughs> and so you, but your dad said to you you want to do this for the rest of your life you said why do i have to which is again like i think another really good I don't know, just mindset to have, right? It's like, here's this thing. I'm passionate about it right now. Here are the ways I can you know, sort of make it successful. That doesn't mean, okay, now I do that forever, right? Like that's just one thing, which I think, you know, when that, that's, that's what serial entrepreneur means, right? People, you know, hear that term and they're kind of like, I think a lot of people that don't have any, you know, aren't in the entrepreneurial world, they don't really have that kind of, idea of what what does that really stick you know what's behind that but but the idea is you know you, you're you started this you had an exit strategy in mind right off the bat I mean all of these things are just just such great um you know kind of little <laughs> tidbits of great information and, and foresight for people to really think about it whether they're starting a business um, or they're going into real estate or whatever it is, you, you really got to think about it, you know, kind of not just today, but, but down the road, what, what's your plan, you know, kind of in the long run. So what did you do, you know, kind of after this restaurant, it, it went, it went, you know, obviously very well. What, what did, what was kind of next in that progression for you, Chris? So what happened was that restaurant evolved over time and I was able to get my work hours down to just working on those really busy times, right? So I had management in charge of doing food orders, managing schedules, labor, all of that stuff. And so I would show up for the really busy times basically as quality control to make sure things went smoothly. Yeah. And so I was working like four hours a day, sometimes three hours a day, but I still had to be there six days a week, right? So it's like, I don't have the freedom to go anywhere, but I like go golfing in the afternoon mm -hmm. and, you know, ride motorcycles in the afternoon, things like that. Right. Um, but I was like, this isn't just, it's just not a great use of my time. I want to do more and I want to like accelerate this transition to retirement or financial freedom. Right. And maybe not necessarily retirement, but definitely financial freedom. And it just hadn't got to the point where I could sell the business and still have that financial freedom. So as it happens, the restaurant across the street came up for sale and it was a breakfast restaurant and it wasn't com competition. I had a steakhouse. It wasn't competition with a steakhouse, obviously. And it was right across the street. So logistically, very easy to manage. I can walk back and forth across the street. Right. And so hard lessons were learned by expanding into that. And one of the lessons. So it was for sale for a million million four at one point four million. We got them down to a million dollars. I leveraged the restaurant that I had already because we had principal paid down and we had, um, you know, some some good equity in there. So I leveraged that. So basically combined those two properties to get the financing for the million dollar purchase. Mm -hmm. We broke that also into, you know, the landlord company, the real estate company and an operating company for the business itself. Here was a problem in the due diligence phase. And I still to this day don't know what I could have done better for due diligence because I got their books and I didn't know this until after I bought the business, but they kept two sets of books. They kept one set that they gave me and they kept another set that was real. And the business, they, the books that they gave me said that the business was breaking even. All the numbers I ran, everything I ran, I was like, we should be able to make 180 to 220 a year with this. 
if I implement everything that I've implemented with this restaurant that I already own. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize is that the business was actually losing about 150 to 200 a year, depending on the year. And they just kept throwing more staff at it. When I took it over, there was 45 staff members. I trimmed it back immediately to 27. And after seven months of working seven days a week to get this place to the point where it was like, I don't know what else I can do. I was just breaking even. That was it. And I'm like, I could make more money working at the gas station across the street than doing this. And there was no hope of recovering this. So I got diving into the franchise agreement, legal stuff. I basically had to become a lawyer. And I sent my all my agreements, my franchise agreements and everything to a lawyer. And I'm like, man, you got to get me out of this. Like I'm working 18 to 20 hours a day. I'm like scraping by the success, successful restaurant is now funding the unsuccessful restaurant. Like this, this is bad. Like I cannot keep doing this. And so wait, he's like, yeah, give me a couple of weeks. I'll get to it. Blah, blah, blah. I call him back after three weeks and he's like, Oh, I haven't had a chance to look at it. I'm like, man, I'm dying over here. <laughs> and like time is of the essence here. And so I was like, give me that file back. I went through the franchise agreement with a fine tooth comb. I'm like, I'm just, I don't care if the restaurants burn. I'm going through this legal stuff. I got to work on my business instead of in it. Right. Yeah. And so went through the franchise agreement, found a loophole that basically because I owned my own building, I was empowered to kick myself out. So I stopped paying myself rent. <laughs> I defaulted on my own rent. Then I kicked myself out and I gave the franchise notice that they can either take over the store or I can kick the franchise out and I can make Chris's breakfast restaurant. So on the back end, I had to be prepared that they would say, we don't want to take over the store. You're going to have to, you know, figure it out. And I like, so I had to build a menu, build signage, logos, men everything. I had to build out everything as if I was going to start. I called it the broken yoke because the breakfast restaurant that I bought was called a Humpty's. So yeah, it's a franchise mm -hmm. and in Canada, it's a Humpty's. And so I was going to call it the broken yoke. And it was kind of a play on, you know, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. And that's right, a broken right. yoke. <laughs> right. So okay. I thought it was kind of funny. Right. And like, it was kind of an inside joke within the town as well. Right. And so it would all work out pretty well. But anyways, they ended up taking it over. They signed a 10 year lease agreement with me. Found out after that Humpty's would go negotiate with food distributors. And they would say, you know, we got we're, we're going to buy 10,000 cases of hash browns a week, for instance. What kind of a deal are you going to give us? So the distributor, they would talk to the distributor, and then the distributor would go to the supplier of, like, McCain's, let's say, and say, hey, you know, we got this customer going to buy 10,000 cases of hash browns. We'll give them this, this deal. And then the distributor would come back to Humpty's head office and say, yeah, we got you this deal. Then Humpty says, okay, we're going to charge all the franchisees retail price charge them all retail price. And then we're going to take that rebate and send it out to the stores after the fact. I never once got a rebate check. So we were paying, we were supposed to, as a franchisee, have the buying power of all these franchise stores. Yeah. Yeah. But what I figured out was I was getting food in my private one-off restaurant cheaper than I was getting it through Humpty's which doesn't make a lot of sense. And I never got any rebate check. So I roughly figured out based on the volume of the stores that the head office was making $350,000 a month by not sending the stores their rebate checks. Sounds Pretty shady. bad. 
pretty bad way <laughs> yeah. to do business, right? Yeah. So anyways, they signed a 10-year long lease agreement with me and um, here we are kind of thing. Um, I don't own either of those properties anymore, by the way. I ended up exiting those and kind of on my way out of all real estate investments that I have which is probably not uh, what you hear very often on the show because it's more real estate based, right? Oh, no. I, well, sure. But that's, I mean, I don't, that's fine with me. Like I, I, hearing these stories of, you know, sort of managing real estate and stuff. So, I mean, then what did you do next? What, if you've, if you've kind of exited, what's, what's as a serial entrepreneur, what's, what's uh, on the horizon? What are you up to now? Yeah. So, when I exited the Humpties, this was in, I exited the Humpties in 2000, 2010. And then I was like, signed that lease agreement, got the residual income coming in, mortgages paid, little extra cream on top for me. And I'm like, that was pretty good. Let's do that with the first restaurant. Cause I got the principal paid down a lot more with the first restaurant after eight years, right? So I put that one up for sale. It took two years to sell. Finally got that all sold. And then I went traveling for six years. And this was a really, point of discovery in my life, I'll say, right? Whereas like, I'm traveling around to all these places and I went to poor countries and I went to rich countries and just seeing how people struggle and the different struggles that people have, right? Depending on where they are. And so I traveled through South America, a lot of poverty down there and a lot of disparity because there's the really super wealthy. And then there's like, there's not a lot of middle class there. And then there's like people that are scraping by living in, you know, red brick, red brick tenements kind of thing. And yeah barely have a roof over their head. And so just kind of walking through all of that and I traveled for six years. So I was kind of all over the place and I got to spend time. I was fortunate enough to be able to spend lengthy amounts of time in places um, to really kind of identify with the culture and see how they lived instead of like, you know, you fly into a place for a week, you party, you have fun, and then you're out in a week kind of thing. I would spend a month in a place and then move on to the next place kind of thing. So how that pivoted me in, I love traveling. And so I'm like, I want to manage my assets digitally and managing real estate. People say you can manage it from anywhere, but in practice, it's very difficult unless you have a massive team to manage construction processes, renovations, tenants, like you need a big team for all that in order to scale. And I was bitter about employees because when I had the restaurants, I had 64 employees in total. And I'm like, I want a business where I don't have any employees that are here for a paycheck. I want the people that I work with to have a stake in my company and have a drive, a powerful why behind them as well. And so I moved to digital asset management and being able to manage assets from a computer from anywhere and being able to do business over zooms just like we're doing here you know not that we're doing business but you know we could we could <laughs> yeah sure and yeah when you speak about digital assets what are you referring to um stocks and options um so i always thought like you have to buy a stock and then you hope the stock price goes up over time and that the company is going to continue to generate revenue and they're going to grow the revenue and they're going to grow their net income the gap earnings and all that stuff and then I went to a seminar in 2019, maybe 2000, yeah, 2019. And he's like, taught us, it was a three day seminar, very intense, 12 days long, or 12 hour long days for three days. And by the end of it, you're just like cross-eyed, like, I don't know which way is up anymore. And he's like, you don't need stocks to go up to make money. And I'm like, this is mind blowing. <laughs> so I'm like, I got to get more into this. So 
long story short, I got more into it and I ended up not analyzing my risk properly. And I did what most traders do and lost a whole bunch of cash. But most traders, they make a whole bunch of money at the start, which is what I did, made a whole bunch of money at the start and then lost a whole bunch more. And most people, when they lose a whole bunch more, they quit. And I don't have that in me. I don't quit. So I'm like, I just have to do this differently. A lot of wealth is created in the stock market and I've got to figure out a way that I can do it, but manage the risk associated with it. And so over the last four years, I've been really refining everything and just getting it to a point where it can scale. And my passion is that I want to be able to offer investments to non-accredited investors because there's not a lot of vehicles out there for non-accredited investors to be able to invest in, right? Everything is like the rich get richer and that's all fine and dandy, but what about the people that want to get ahead and they just can't reach that accredited status, right? Yeah, I no, I think that's great. I think um, the not quitting thing is so, I mean, it applies to everything, right? It applies to your restaurant businesses. It applies to real estate. It applies to, you know, the trading stocks. It's, it's, it's true. It's like, Oh, uh, well, that didn't go well. I guess I shouldn't do that anymore. And it's like, I, I was actually listening to, um, I don't know if you know who Alex and Leila Harmozy are, but they are, you know, have built big companies and now they have acquisition.com. They started like in the gym space, but anyway, she just started a podcast and it's fantastic because she gives very practical advice. And she was just talking about like pe people have this fear of failure, the fear of losing. And, and that's why they don't do big things. That's why they don't, you know, kind of push through these situations that that you ran into. And, and the reality is, is that what you need to do is decide, I am going to lose money. Like I am going to have failures. I, I am going to lose. And then that becomes okay. And now you figure out how to be better for it. And she was like, she's like, if I want to create, you know, a, a billion dollar company, I expect to lose $10 million, like somewhere along the way, like that's going to happen. And so she was just kind of like, she just put it out there in the, in such a way. And it was like, you know, essentially like whatever your goal is, you know, if, if you're, if you're putting it at, you know, it's easiest to look at it from numbers, but it's like expect to lose 10% along the way. And, but that's going to make it easier and make you stronger and make you be able to push forward and, and then do better, you know, going forward from those losses. So it it is really about just kind of shifting that uh, mindset, that perspective around it and, and realizing that, okay, if I, if I want to do big things, I'm going to lose along the way and that's okay. Then it's like, you could use, you know, she, she talks about in reference to business, you can talk about it in, in, in sports, right? It's like how many times you, you the great, you know, the great uh, athletes and the great sports teams, the, they lose sometimes, like it just happens, you lose, you don't go undefeated. That's not what matters. It's just kind of where, where, where you, how you take those losses and use them as, you know, sort of learning and stepping stones. So, I mean, it really sounds like, like, that's what you've done, Chris. And I, I really love your, your perspective on all of this and, and kind of what you're, what you're taking away from it and what, how you're, you know, it's just like, well, I didn't quit. Okay. Right. That's exactly it. Right. You don't lose if you haven't, if you don't quit. So it, yep. I love it. Yeah. You got to figure out a way though. And you gotta, gotta be calculated about it. Right. You can't just like go out and bet the farm on everything because right. if you only got one farm, you can ruin that reputation really fast. Right. So you got to really monitor that, that, and you know, 
going all in, there's one thing about going all in, but there's another thing about doing it in a calculated way. And so just along the lines of what you're saying exactly is, you know, Michael Jordan has all these stats and all these records that he holds in the NBA, right? And one podcast that I was listening to, they're like, nobody ever talks about how many shots he took to get those stats. And he, he probably does. took more shots than anyone else did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so another one, another little quote is, we always learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. And there's a big reason for that. When you succeed at something, how often do you like go through it and dissect it? What you did right. Right. You're just like, well, that was a win. Excellent. On to the next thing. When you fail, you're like, how do where did we go wrong? Where what did we do here? Right. And you dissect it on a with a fine-tooth comb and figure out like what can we do better next time? But you don't do that with the success part. Yeah. It's 100% true. We're 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 more <laughs> the pain of sort of losing or the pain of failure is more motivating than the than the you know sort of thrill of of winning. It's like it, it's it's funny even even you know maybe felt the same thing you know with with your businesses and the restaurant stuff but it was like when i when i made the decision to get into multifamily investing it was you know it's always it's all about if you, every mentorship program is like this is how you get your first deal right that's like what everybody talks about and it, and it it's kind of silly in hindsight because that's maybe not the most important thing about it but but in reality that that's that's what what people look at as like their first big win right but it was like I could not describe to you a more anticlimactic moment in my life than closing the first deal. It was just like work, 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 work. Like so, like like a, a year, more than a year of work went into getting the first one closed, and it's like the day of closing. There's all the stuff happening, and then you get an email from the closing attorney, and they're like, "Congratulations, you closed." I'm like, well, now what? <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. So I guess now I own this and have to manage it for the next five, seven years. You know what I mean? It's just like what what you have to you have to get excited and passionate about the actual process and yes that's what that's what why why people can be you know sort of ultra successful because they're just like okay i'm gonna lose sometimes but that's all right like it doesn't matter i'm gonna i'm gonna use those losses as learning points and i'm also gonna try to learn from the wins because that's that's how you really can, can truly be successful so yeah how um, do you duplicate those wins right 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 duplicate it and you know look at it like you might have had a win but not everything went perfect right it's like you so being able to break that down still in a win and say here are the parts that did go well and here are the parts that we could do better so that our wins get bigger or our wins get more frequent or whatever like you're you're it's all part of that sort of calculation that you just talked about it's the the point is yes you're going to lose but don't be stupid about it don't just think okay i'm going to lose so i can just do whatever i want right it's, it's <laughs> yeah. still kind of a <laughs> there is a, it's a a level of you know kind of you have to have some level of of thought put into it Th those losses can't just be because you're you're being silly so yeah really yeah, exactly uh, i really love the perspective um, let me, let me shift gears, Chris. I want to, I want to get to the chance to ask you the questions I ask every guest. Um, and the, the first one is based on the name of the show being know, know your why. And so I always ask every guest, what is your why? What drives you? You've had really, I think a very unique, um, interesting sort of cool background. I mean, six years of travel, like, like I'm sure there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this and be like, I want, I want to do what he did. Like there's, there's a, it's a very cool thing despite the fact that I know 
you know, when you wrap it up in a, in a, you know, <laughs> 45 minute podcast, it, it, it looks all neat. And I'm sure there was a lot of work and trouble along the way, but, but now, you know, it sounds like you've, you've reached a point in your life where you want to manage digital assets, but what's your, why, what's kind of pushing you forward and continuing this journey? Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of people don't deeply know their why. And I think I'm in a different situation than most. And that traveling is just such a huge part of getting to that space and getting to that like deep why. And so mine is that I want to make available an investment vehicle that everyone can take part in, whether they're accredited or non-accredited. And I want to provide education because if people know what they're investing in, then they're a lot more likely to be less emotional about it. And essentially, I'm just, I'm, my why is like the education side, right? And teaching people. I, I feel fire when I teach people. And once they see, when they have this aha moment when I teach them about my strategy and about how, how everything works with my investment fund. And once they get there, they're like, oh my God, it's like they've discovered fire. And that's the way I felt when I got to this strategy, when I got to this point in my in my learning process of getting the strategy down and you know generating cash flow in the stock market and realizing I don't need the price of the stock to go up to make money. And you know, essentially I'm just feel like I'm opening an insurance company and it's just fantastic, right? And so once they see that, they're just like, wow, this is incredibly powerful. And so I'll teach people how to do it on their own. And that's, that's more my why is like the education and providing insight to people, giving them something new, some hope that they're like, yeah, this is, this is cool to learn this stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I, I, I love the, uh, the idea that the, you know, sort of, I guess, mission of getting, getting investment vehicles to, you know, unaccredited investors. I, I think it's actually something that really bothers me within the real estate space that so much of it is so much of these, you know, private offerings are are accredited investors only and it's like look like the already rich people don't need a lot of help getting richer what restricting that with the sec restricting those investment opportunities from people that don't meet those certain financial uh hurdles or whatever it is like i, I just think is is kind of irresponsible you know whatever i'm not, not going to get into whether it's on purpose I, I can or not. tell you I can tell you in a nutshell I can tell you in a nutshell I always thought it was unethical as well and like why are they doing this to people like they're keeping the keeping the poor poorer but the reason that it is in a nutshell is that I could get someone really invested and really excited about the investment opportunity that I have and things might not go well I know just like we talked about that things the stock market's going to go down it's going to go up their net asset value of their investment is not just going to go up and to the right it doesn't work that way yep. and so they tend to be more emotional because they put more on the line because I get them excited and they're like yes this is awesome and let's say they only have a hundred thousand dollars to their name and they put 90 of it with me then they get emotional about that because it's their entire life, yeah. right? And then it leads to SEC investigations. It gets very clunky there, right? And it becomes a lot of work for the SEC. So that's why. Right. And it, and it makes, I guess, well, yeah, I guess you could put my, my counter argument on this, and I'm, and I'm not, not really trying to argue with you. On no, no, it's fine. I'm not taking it that way. Yeah. The, the um, I, I always use the GameStop example, right? So so here was this, 
thing that happened because of and I don't even know because I thought it was also silly I didn't even pay attention to it very much but the point is I have friends who were like this is awesome I'm gonna put money into GameStop because look what's happening and then lost a bunch of money and now they didn't lose fifty thousand dollars but like the point being you don't have to be accredited to put your life savings on Robin Hood and blow it all on some you know like you, you don't, you don't know anything about it. Right. So yep. it, it's, it's just, it's unequal, right. It's, it's the, yep. the, there's a, a reason or there's a way to lose all your money as an unaccredited investor. You can do it. You yep. just can't do it in real estate or in businesses that you would invest in or things, things that in theory might actually be a safer investment, unless it's someone like yourself who has, you know, sort of studied how to make money in the stock market without the stocks going up. Cause that's what most, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I couldn't do that. So it's kind of like most people don't know how to do that. That might be an invest investing within their, you know, if they're doing any of it on their own, you know, other than just putting it in a, a mutual fund or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, with the stock market, it's, you know, it's a good thing that you brought that up because with the whole GameStop situation and things like that, Robinhood was under a law under a microfine glass there, mm. right? Um, magnifying glass rather. And so it's like when you sign into that brokerage, you know the terms and conditions and all that jazz. Yeah, you're signing that you know how to do diligence on companies and that you understand the risks right. in the stock market and all those things. And it's just as easy as clicking the box, just like your Apple terms and conditions, yeah. right? Nobody reads and it, it all. Yeah, and <laughs> I don't think it should be that way, right? But how else do you do it? How do you force someone to understand that they could lose all their money, right. right? And so then there's another layer of due diligence when you're investing privately, because now not only do they have to trust the strategy that I'm doing, they if they understand the strategy deeply, let's say, they understand everything that I'm doing and they're very sophisticated when it comes to the knowledge, but they don't meet the financial criteria. Then the other layer of risk is that they have to trust that I'm actually going to stick to exactly what I'm saying I'm gonna do. Right. So there's that extra layer of trust on my ability to execute, for instance, or if you have a fund for your ability to execute. So that extra layer is where people tend not to do the due diligence. They're like, yeah, hey, I'm really excited about the strategy. It's fantastic. Look at it. Look at all the profit you can make and you don't need the stock to go up or look at all the profit you can make and you don't need the piece of real estate to go up in value. You just collect on rents. Right. And then they fall into this category where they're really excited about the item, but they're not looking at the management side of it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah just due diligence around the board, right? That they're... Yeah. yeah. And uh, honestly, that is probably the best <laughs> best explanation I have heard as to why it might be different uh, in terms of, you know, investing within Robinhood. Or, and, it, and you're right, Robinhood got stuck under that sort of magnifying glass at that when that all happened. But the reality is you could do the same and you could have done the same thing in any of the brokerages. It was just like Robinhood was the one that that for whatever reason took the hit there. I was like, I can do it in... TD Ameritrade, I can do it in Merrill Edge. Like I could do it in yeah. all of them. It didn't really matter. Um, anyway, a little bit of a side, but I, I just think it's like such there, an yeah. interesting, interesting topic in like the way these things get structured. It's it kind of fascinating. Um, but back to you, tell us something about yourself that uh, isn't common knowledge, a special skill, a hobby. Um, I know you said you traveled a lot, um, whatever, whatever you'd be in uh, or be willing to share um, yep. with the audience just to get to know you better. I love to travel in an RV. 
Um, I've got a 42 foot class A motor home. Um, it's currently broke down in Kanab, Utah, but I love being in there. Like I could live in there, right. And just travel around North America and just go to different spots. And my passion, the sport that I'm passionate about is kiteboarding. Are you familiar oh, cool. with this? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've never done yeah. it, but I've always wanted to try. Yeah, it is. Um, this kind of a funny analogy, but uh, I say it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on. Um, and so it's like adrenaline rush. I love adrenaline. And that's where I get my adrenaline from is kiteboarding. And like you can fly in the air like 40 feet and come down and land like just smooth as butter. And yeah. it's just it's an amazing sport. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I've always it, it, it's uh, Dominican Republic is like the place, right? Like the people that's like the there's like kiteboard beach or something like that there. That's the place. Yes, I lived really... there. I lived there. There you go. Yeah. I, that's something I would, I would love to try that someday. That is definitely on the, on the bucket list, getting, getting to kiteboard and it, it does, it looks amazing. I love the water or just like sort of that, you know, sort of freedom. And I don't know, even though I know it can hurt for whatever reason, I feel much, uh, <laughs> I feel much safer being on having sort of a water crash than like a land crash. I don't know why it's just like, it feels like it should be softer, even though yeah. I have gone uh, water skiing and wakeboarding and, and realized that that water gets real hard when you're moving that fast, but uh, it does. And <laughs> with kiteboarding, you can have a land cro land crash from the water. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You get caught up <laughs> and it just carries so, you over. <laughs> just a quick, just a quick disclaimer and a little bit of valuable advice for everybody on the podcast. If you look at kiteboarding and you think you want to learn how to do it, please, please, please get lessons. Yeah. You, it, it will literally save your life in the most literal sense you can think of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, very, very good advice. We, we have to put a, uh, a a disclaimer on this one. <laughs> yeah, not the common disclaimer of financial right. advice, but the right, one exactly. of don't kill we, yourself kiteboarding. Is, <laughs> we, we are not kiteboarding experts, and we do not claim to be make any, you know, something along those lines. Um, awesome. When people hear this and they want to reach out, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, we've got a website, uh, abundanceassetmanagement.com. If you just put that into a Google search, it'll show up right underneath all the sponsored ads. We don't have a sponsored ad. And then uh, my email um, is chris at abundanceassetmanagement.com. If you want to reach directly to me, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, you can find me on all those spots. Perfect. Um, final question for you, Chris. What, what piece of advice would you give to someone who is, and I'll let you take this in any direction, but basically trying to get started, whether that's in business, investing, you know, some something, uh, I guess, financial freedom related, what, what would you what would you tell them? I would say buy shares of the either the S&P 500, or if you like technology, the QQQ. Um, the stats don't lie, you know, Warren Buffett, and there's a widely known stat that's no private investment outperforms the S&P 500 or the QQQ. So let's say even, you know, you could argue there's 10% of funds that are going to outperform these things. Um, either A, you're not going to have access to it because you're not accredited. You're just getting started. Um, and B, um, you're going to have to control your emotions, right? So if you just put your money in the S&P 500 and you just constantly buy a share, and this is something that transformed the way I looked at looked at stocks. Is I have a mentor in Silicon Valley that has a five hundred million dollar fund, and he's like, every first and fifteenth we bring money into our fund, and on the first and fifteenth we buy shares of these certain companies. Every time, it doesn't matter what the stock price is doing, we just buy them. It's part of our mandate, right? And 
he's like, I buy these companies, buy shares of these companies. And so for this example, let's say you're buying shares of the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, for instance, buy one share or two shares, whatever you can afford, doesn't matter. And hope that the stock price goes down. This helps you immediately control your emotions because most people buy it and they want it to go up. But if you're going to be buying groceries for the rest of your life, like you're going to be buying stocks for the rest of your life, for instance, you don't want the price of the groceries to go up. You want it to go down so that you get a better deal next month. If it goes up and you're disappointed, this is a drastically different emotion that you're going to feel. And internally, it helps you because we all know that you buy low and sell high. Everybody knows that. But why in the stock market are everybody like, oh, I'm cutting my losses? What? What are you talking about? Yeah. Don't cut your losses. You can only cut your losses so many times before you go broke. It doesn't matter how much money you have, right, right. but you can buy low and sell high an infinite amount of times. So just make this rule for yourself. And if you're in investing in an index fund in the first place, it can't go to zero. So have that security in your mind in the first place that the, the investment can't go to zero anyway. So if it goes down, just think of it like, oh, there's a sale this month. Yeah, uh, and it's a great point. And it, it's, a, it's true. It, there, there's a lot of... Um psychology to it it's uh it's funny I'll, I'll quickly tell you like this this is a silly story of my own stock investment so I, I had never done any like any stock investing ever and then I just this is and my wife would laugh but this is kind of how I tend to do things and it was like you know what I really should figure this out <laughs> and so I just like took we had sold a house that we had renovated we had some money and I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and, and buy some stock and figure this out so I I did that. And the first thing I did was, was buy, uh, I just tell people don't, these are my mistakes. Don't do them. I bought like 500 shares of, of, um, Under Armour. I was like, I wear Under Armour. That's a good. And it was like, it went all over the place, went down, went up. It, it, it was never a particularly well-performing. Um, I think at the end of the day, I broke even or maybe made a little bit of money, but it was like, so then I was like, okay, that strategy of just buying things that I like doesn't really work. And then I, I ended up buying, I didn't even know I bought Shopify and Shopify, if I'm sure, you know, as a Canadian is like the Canadian Amazon for people who don't know. And it went up, like it did great, right? Like it was doing phenomenally. And then I think I bought it like $15 a share and it went up to a hundred dollars a share. And then it dropped, then we had like a, a, a bad Correction. earnings and it, and it dropped down and it dropped down to like, I don't know, 40 or probably $60 a share or something from there. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, it. and I, I sold it all. And I was like, and then like uh, to two months later, it was $300 a share or something. And it was just, I, that actually taught me exactly what you're talking about right now is that you can't do it emotionally. You can't sell emotionally because I mean, Shopify is down now because everything's down, but like it had eventually went up to like 1500 a share or something like that. And it was like, I ended up buying them again but like, had I just stuck in and did what you're doing, which is essentially you're co costing about like dollar cost, is it averaging? Yeah, dollar cost, dollar cost averaging. averaging. Yeah, yeah, and it's like you just you just keep buying it, and when it goes down, you're happy because you're buying it at a cheaper. And personally, I don't know if you recommend this. Like, I actually tend to buy more when they go down. If it's a stock I believe in, I'm like, you know, like when Shopify's down or or whatever it is, some one of these companies is down. I'll buy more when it's down with the thought that this is a good company, it's going to go back up, right? Well, so because your weighted of... price average is then going to drop more than if you just buy the equal amount at the lower price, yeah. right? That's and what so I look at now. Is that weighted just... price average? I was like, I try to get that number down. That's my goal. 
So just to give a quick uh, stock options thing, because what you just said is leading right to the stock option situation. So what you can do if you're buying shares in bulk is you can sell insurance against the stock price. And so let's say you want to, you know, the shares trading at $100 a share, just whatever, it doesn't matter. And you want to buy it for 95, you're happy to buy it for 95. You can put either, you can put a limit order in and say you're going to buy it for 95. And then if the stock price falls, you buy some for 95, right? But you can also sell a put instead, sell a stock option instead at 95. And so if you're going to buy 100 shares, then you can get paid just to put a limit order in. Yeah. And that's so the stuff you... I've been, I've never gotten into because I'm like, I, I try, I, like I said, I decided I was going to figure it out. And I was like, I got to that point and I was like, oh, this sounds very complicated for me. So I, it was something that I never got that far into, but I, I think it's, uh, yeah. I mean, the people that, that, that's the thing is like, th this is the whole point in, in terms of investing either in, in a, in a safe uh, if you're investing yourself, you're investing in a safe vehicle, like you said, the, like the S&P 500 or the QQQ, whatever, you pick what you want, but like you're investing in that sort of very safe, it's just going to move with the market. Or you find someone like yourself in stocks or or like myself in, or other operators in real estate, and you find someone that you can trust to put your money to work and have it, you know, it, it's not always going to go up. You're right. Like it, it, no matter what we do, it's not always going to go up, but the idea is that if we do it right, it will go up more than it goes down. And minimum, you should have a five-year time horizon, in my opinion. Yeah. Bare yeah, minimum. You have to look at it at, at, in the long term. It's, it's, you know, right now we're in a wild place. Right. You're it's a it's recession, or just a, a weird market, whatever you want to call it. But basically it's, it's a, um, you know, a, pl a time when people are nervous, but it doesn't mean we just like, you don't stop investing because of that. It's just, you know, be, maybe you're a little more careful. I don't know. But regardless, um, I just want to say thanks, Chris. This this has been really an awesome conversation. And I think um, so many really good uh, kind of just messages in there with, with you know, starting with the restaurants and, and what you're doing with stocks. I mean, it's just big picture stuff that people should be really thinking about it in, in their pursuit of, of financial freedom. So thanks for coming on and, and sharing your story today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Absolutely. And, and folks listening, uh, I know you're going to love this episode. I think you get a lot of value and you're going to want to reach out to Chris, but um, please like rate and review uh, helps us get more great guests on the show um, and expand our reach so we can um, provide more value. All right. Have a great day, everyone. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.